Thank you guys for coming out on a Monday afternoon. You're the, the faithful. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited uh, that we have more time uh, with Colin Hansen. His is, and I actually think this is kind of the ideal setting, to be honest, because we're going to do a 25, 30-minute talk, and then we're going to do extended Q&A. And you're going to find that's incredibly rich. Just his experiences, he's engaged with the global church, he's engaged with the evangelical world in all of its forms um, in America, and just is a, is a very savvy um, commentator and listener and watcher of media and uh, historical events and trying to make sense of it for us. So I really look forward to the discussion afterwards. So even as he talks, um, Please be thinking about things you would like to ask afterwards, uh, and they can relate to what he said this morning, what he says now, um, and you'll see as we get going with Q&A, it'll be able to relate to a lot of other things. So um, let me pray real fast, and we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we do thank you that you are the giver of all good gifts, including the gifts of our minds and our affections, and we long for our affections to be directed toward you to be directed toward the good of your world and your church. Forgive us for when we uh, find our affections deformed, malformed, uh, bent inwards in problematic directions. Help us as your church to be more faithful in a time when it is so tempting to say your name but represent you poorly. Um, give us faithfulness. Be with Colin, help him to speak with clarity, uh, with grace. Uh, use this time for our good and uh, the good of your church. In Christ's name, amen. Yes, I agree. This is a, it's a great setting. I'm looking forward to this. And it's always wonderful when your gracious host says, feel free to be provocative. <laughs> it's, always, it's always a treasure. So uh, a lot of this comes from ongoing thoughts that, that you can find in my book, Gospel Bound, but also just applied in some different ways. And the talk, the title is No Apology Needed. And you'll see where we're going with that. So talk today has never been cheaper because we have too much of it. This isn't complicated. You can learn this in economics at the Chalmers Center. Um, it's a simple matter of supply and demand. We produce an unprecedented volume of content in talk, radio, social media websites, cable news. Everyone has a podcast or two today, including myself, <laughs> guilty as well, uh, especially since the pandemic began. And I think I saw something like the number of podcasts doubled in 2020. It, we consume more and more media while we're washing dishes, working out, relaxing before bed, commuting to work and to school. But how's anybody supposed to keep up with all of this? And how can anyone know in that environment whom they're supposed to trust? Now, amid this glut of information, Christians have put a lot of emphasis on getting the message out and getting the message right. And we've developed, we've invested a lot of hope and money in developing better arguments that will convince our neighbors to finally trust in Jesus. So we write smart books on apologetics, on defending the faith. We develop helpful courses. We raise tens of millions of dollars to endow ministries to help believers think and thinkers believe. That stuff's not necessarily bad, 
In fact, I have done a lot of it myself and still continue to do that and teach a course based in Divinity School on cultural apologetics. But what if God wants more from us? And what if our time and place demands a different priority? Now, the Apostle Paul, he might be considered the patron saint of apologetics. We admire his innovative preaching from Mars Hill in Athens in Acts 17, and we quote 2 Corinthians 10, 5 to 6, which says this, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, you can take that verse, you can head straight to Facebook and start arguing with people in the comment sections, of course, because someone is wrong somewhere on the internet, even now, believe it or not. But what reason does Paul give for why we're supposed to take every thought captive? It's so that we might obey Christ, so that we might obey Christ. If we've learned nothing else from Ravi Zacharias, we should know it's easier to speak the truth than it is to obey the truth. Today, I see so many Christians who are zealous to defend the truth that they're willing to lie in defense of the truth. How much longer then, I would say, I would lament, do we need to apologize for such apologetics? This divide between truth and obedience that I see would would not have made sense to the Apostle Paul. And you can see in Romans 2.8 how he pairs truth and obedience together. He says this, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So especially with so much of the emphasis on worldview education, we often think of truth as an exclusively cognitive category, a matter of orthodoxy, right belief, rather than orthopraxy, right behavior. But you won't find this distinction sharply in Scripture between truth and obedience because they're both necessary. You can't have one without the other. If you're lying for the sake of truth then you're not obeying God. If you're lying for the sake of truth, then you're not working for him. And we know Paul reserves some harsh words for preachers who change or reject his message. And you can find this same phrase, obey the truth, in Galatians 5, 7, and that appears to be the context there. This is where the so-called circumcision party, they've distorted the truth by saying that Gentiles must obey the law and be circumcised. So, in this case, obeying the truth means enjoying the freedom of the gospel received by faith, and as we're here for these Reformation lectures, we know this is perhaps the essential insight of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, which we celebrate. But listen to what Paul says in Romans to teachers who have the right message, but not the right behavior. He condemns the preachers who say stealing is wrong but still steal, and the preachers who condemn adultery while they commit adultery. It's hypocrisy. Their words don't match their actions, their play acting. They boast in the law, but according to Paul, they dishonor God by breaking the law. And in Romans 2.24, he quotes the condemnation of Isaiah 52.5, 
The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This passage tells us that we can preach the right message, but if we don't obey the truth, then we hinder others from believing in God, which is sobering. Now, churches get a lot of unfair criticism. I always want to stand up for churches and their leaders, but we do probably all know churches that would not make anyone want to become a Christian They twist the teaching of Jesus and his gospel message, and they condemn others for doing what they themselves practice. They're not characterized by faith, hope, and love. They may take the name of Jesus, but they don't look anything or sound like him. And when you meet somebody who's visited these churches or even perhaps grown up in one, we want to apologize to them on behalf of other Christians. We wish they could have enjoyed the safety and freedom in love of a church where God's people actually obey His commandments. And our hearts ache for friends who never knew God's love even as they knew God's people. But I want to say there's another side to this story. It's not entirely negative, and this should encourage us. Because Paul implies that if we obey the truth, then we will encourage others to follow God. You don't even necessarily need to argue. You don't need to perfect every answer on every objection that you see from those TikTok apologists. You don't need to answer every erroneous comment you see on Facebook, if your generation was even on Facebook anymore. You don't need to say or do anything special at all except to live out the power of the Spirit who dwells in you. Because when we live in the light, no apology is needed. Now, one of, the, one of the most capable and determined apologists of the 20th century was Carl F.H. Henry. You can still find and own, own all six volumes and 3,000 pages of his landmark work, God, Revelation, and Authority. You can qu- quiz Dr. Kabik on everything afterward. Kelly, we're ready for you to answer every question on there. But if anyone believed in the power of arguments and in the urgency of writing, it was Henry who also served as the first editor of Christianity Today magazine. He was a great theologian who also practiced evangelism with strangers. Just imagine sitting next to him when you're on a flight and he's heading off to some far-flung place as an ambassador for world vision. Rarely did he ever enter a debate that he couldn't win. In fact, he even entered into a debate with with theologian Karl Barth in one famous exchange. But Henry didn't necessarily think that good arguments would make the world believe in Jesus. He never put all of his eggs in the basket of rational apologetics. Instead, he believed the modern mind would turn to Jesus when skeptics saw Christians obey the truth. Now listen to what he wrote in his 1947 classic, The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism. It's not good practice of speakers to read long quotes, but I'll work us through it afterwards. So try to pick up what you can from it. He writes this, The evangelical task primarily is the preaching of the gospel, in the interest of individual regeneration by the supernatural grace of God, in such a way that divine redemption can be recognized as the best solution of our problems. 
individual, and social. This produces within history through the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit a divine society that transcends national and international lines. The corporate testimony of believers and their purity of life should provide for the world an example of the divine dynamic to overcome evils in every realm. The social problems of our day are much more complex than in apostolic times, but they do not on that account differ in principle. When the 20th century church begins to outlive its environment as the first century church outlived its pagan neighbors, the modern mind, too, will stop casting about for other solutions. All right, like I said, there's a lot going on in this passage. Let's work through it. Henry affirms that our first task as Christians is to tell people the good news about Jesus. It's always necessary to use words when preaching the gospel. No one will conclude just from watching your life that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died and rose for sinners, and that he is coming again soon to renew the heavens and the earth. You've got to tell them. You must tell them this good news and call them to repent of their sin and to believe. Then, Henry says, this regeneration of the Holy Spirit will produce a divine society that displays the divine dynamic in and for our troubled, troubled world. So basically, our unbelieving friends and family should be able to look at us and see something different and something compelling. They should see how the bonds of the Spirit bring together people who don't normally get along. They should see people making peace across the borders of our violent age. They should see us love each other in ways that don't make sense apart from the blood of Christ. Now, Henry isn't setting any new expectation here. He's just echoing the teaching of Jesus from John 13, 34, 35, which says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Just consider how this worked out in the early church. The first Christians had little to no political power, yet in the power of the Holy Spirit, they turned the world upside down. Not even persecution could dissuade many pagans from forsaking false gods and worshiping Jesus instead. They realized nothing and no one else could solve their problems. Christians did not set out to conquer the Roman Empire, but by their practice of evangelism and their ethic of love, they affected the greatest social change the world has ever seen. If God was for them, and this same God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, Henry admits maybe the problems today in a nuclear age, they're just much more complex than what the apostles knew. But I would say, so long as humanity's central problem remains alienation from God and therefore one another, then the cross of Christ remains the only ultimate solution to the problem of evil and death. And the world will realize and embrace this solution, I believe, when they see born-again Christians obey the truth in their love for one another. Obviously, not everybody is going to see this, but I think that's what the seeds of revival look like in our day. Now, nearly 75 years after 
and since Henry wrote this little book, we, we once again come back and face a crisis, of the power, a crisis of confidence in the power of the gospel to change societies. But again, I ask, is our situation any more dire than what Henry's was? Just to take you back, this is what Henry was facing. He lived through both world wars. He wrote this book just two years before the Soviet Union would complete its first successful nuclear test. And from this fateful day in 1949, a communist and atheist state bent on world domination would ultimately develop the capability of destroying the planet on a single command. Can you even begin to imagine the fear and the anxiety? If not, talk to your grandparents. And yet at the same time, Henry saw the Lord raise up a generation of evangelical preachers and churches to lead a mass-scale revival during mid-20th century America, an era of unprecedented church attendance when Billy Graham and Martin Luther King shaped the national conscience. Now, I don't yet see evidence of such a revival in our day, but if we could see it coming, then it wouldn't be revival. It's the whole nature of it. It surprises us. Do you think anyone could have predicted that little Wittenberg could have produced a former monk who challenged the Pope? Do you think in the second century anyone thought Christianity would win the West? As scholars of this dynamic period of church history, the second century, have identified a number of clues for why the church grew, even amid increasing opposition to Christianity after the death of the apostles. Larry Hurtado, the late scholar of second century Christianity, he described these believers embodied apologetic in a way that I would summarize as being accessible and odd. Accessible and odd. He writes this in his book, Destroyer of the Gods. Highly recommend this little book from the late Larry Hurtado. He says this, A successful religious movement must retain a certain level of continuity with its cultural setting, and yet it must also maintain a medium level of tension with that setting as well. That is, a movement must avoid being seen as completely alien or incomprehensible, but on the other hand, it must also have what I mean by distinctives, distinguishing features that set it apart in its cultural setting including the behavioral demands made upon its converts. There has to be a clear difference between being an insider to the group and being an outsider. It's not, in other words, it's not the rules and the demands that make people reject Christianity. It's more likely to be the rules and the demands when people know that the people even, you know, ostensibly believing in them don't bother to actually do them. That's the difference. But this accessible and odd dynamic is what I've, what I've called gospel-bound, bound to this unchanging gospel, bound to glory someday when Christ returns or calls us home. It's odd because Christians don't live for this world. It's accessible at the same time because that world that we do live for is so much better, more wonderful, more glorious than this one ever could be. Now there's another scholar of the sec- of second century Christianity, Alan Crider, who echoes Hurtado. And I don't think it's a coincidence 
You see a lot of the same things coming out of people focusing on the second century. He observes that church leaders from this era, the second century, wrote landmark theological and apologetic works to define and defend the faith, classics we still read today. But Kreider contends that it was example, more than argument, that compelled many Romans to believe in Jesus. He calls this dynamic, it's just a different version of accessible and odd, disconcerting and converting. Disconcerting and converting. This is what he says in his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. He says, it was not primarily what the Christians said that carried weight with outsiders. It was what they did and embodied that was both disconcerting and converting. It was their habitus, their reflexes and way of life that suggested that there was another way to perceive reality that made the Christians interesting, challenging, and worth investigating. Now think about this. A lot of people can object to me and say, well, I don't think Christians should be disconcerting. Shouldn't our contextualization make things comprehensible? But I think, what's wrong with being disconcerting in this society today? What's wrong with being disconcerting when anxiety levels have spiked and happiness has declined? Why shouldn't Christians be disconcerting in our joy and in our peace? This is not the time when Christians should be trying to fit in. Yes, we should do everything we can to make the gospel comprehensible so that our neighbors can understand what we're saying, but there's no reason to make them comfortable in this pervasive fear and anxiety. For the sake of Jesus Christ, Christians can show a better way in faith and love. If we don't set this example, then what alter- to what alternative will the world turn? If you look around today, I don't think you're going to like the answers When I look at politics and social media, I see a world that believes if you just hate your enemies a little more, then perhaps you can finally defeat them. Friends, I don't think we're going to like where this ends up. But let's consider an example for how Christians can be disconcerting and converting. And that's by forgiving their enemies. I have a chapter on this in the book Gospel Bound. These stories stand out precisely because the world does not understand, even as at the same time they're unexpectedly captivated by this love. Remember, go back to the shocking 2015 murders at Emanuel AME in Charleston, South Carolina. A 21-year-old white supremacist sat through a Bible study in a historically black church before gunning down nine of the attendees. Now, if you remember this story, you probably also remember that the grieved community never sought revenge against the killer or any of his relations. But wouldn't the world have justified them okay in doing so? I mean, isn't that the natural human response? Just think if you're honest with yourself. How would you have responded if a stranger had studied the Bible alongside your mother or your grandmother, your husband, and then stood up and shot them in cold blood, one by one. If we're honest, 
I think it'd be real tempting to not offer love and forgiveness to the killer. Here's what Vermont Pierre, a friend of mine and a pastor in Arizona, observed about this mass shooting. He says, it should shock us when we encounter a situation in which a victim doesn't take revenge. When someone chooses to forgive, we are watching someone pay an enormously heavy and personal cost. Historically, the black church has arguably paid this bill more than most other communities in America. We should never take this forgiveness for granted. We should marvel and thank God every time we see it. Marvel, absolutely, and I would add also worship because remember that this is so much so similar to what Jesus did for us. He paid the cost for our forgiveness and nothing is more essential to Christianity than the forgiveness of our sins. That's the good news of Romans 1 that set Martin Luther's heart free and set it on fire to share this gospel with all the world. Now this forgiveness, I think it makes all the difference. It's disconcerting and converting. This is why Jesus, he commands us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us back in Matthew 5, 44. Anyone can love people who love you back, but the world takes notice when you love the people who hurt you and cannot and will not love you back. One of the parts of the book Gospel Bound that I can't even get through rereading or writing is about Gladys Staines, the, the uh, widow of Graham Staines, where Hindu nationalists had burned her husband and her two boys alive in a car. It's even hard for me to even talk about right now. But that contrast is exactly with what the world expects, is exactly what's disconcerting to them. It's exactly what counters how the world typically works. And it's exactly that that becomes converting for people to say, those are the true words of freedom and life in a world full of pain and recrimination. Now for us, friends may ghost us, Twitter mobs may cancel us, but we can know that Jesus will never leave or forsake us no matter what comes our way, which is why we don't have to be fearful and anxious because you can act in faith. You can invite that neighbor with the political yard signs you don't like to join you for dinner. You can say no to sexual temptation. You can fight for joy when the pain never goes away. You can uphold your wedding vows. You can study hard when you'd rather just quit under the pressure. You can obey the truth. You can outlive your neighbors. You can prepare the way for another reformation that will turn the world upside down. Not because you have to learn how to argue like Luther or Calvin, though I hope at least some of you will and can teach the rest of us, but because the same spirit that dwelled in them now dwells in you. The same spirit bears the same fruit in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control for the sake of Christ and for his glory. Now as I conclude here, many of the best minds in the church today, they've focused their attention on the problem of what to do in Western nations that have turned away from Christianity. 
And this is how Tim Keller describes the challenge in his little book, highly recommended, called How to Reach the West Again. He says this, We are entering a new era in which in many places in the West there is not only no social benefit to being a Christian, but an actual social cost to espousing faith. Culture is becoming more actively hostile toward Christian beliefs and practices. Semi-biblical, generically religious beliefs in God, truth, sin, and the afterlife, these religious dots, are disappearing in more and more people as culture produces people for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. Therefore, we must find ways of evangelizing people who lack the religious dots and would never think of coming to church. I was just talking at lunch about Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which brilliantly connects many of these dots of what's happening in our world and why it's changing so quickly now. And he explains how the last several centuries have delivered us to this point of departure between the West and Christianity. Even even acknowledging there are many challenges that are particular to our our post-Christian era, but Truman is very similar to Hurtado and Kreider, like Keller as well, sees much resemblance between our situation and the second century. So do you think that today's church can survive and endure and even thrive under an increased level of formal, even violent opposition? If so, and Carl Truman at the end of his book, he lays out how this can happen, how we can see a church thrive even with that kind of hostility. And he says this, The second century world is in a sense our world, where Christianity is a choice, and a choice likely at some point to run afoul of the authorities. It was that second century world, of course, that laid the foundations for the later successes of the third and fourth centuries. And she did it by what means? By existing as a close-knit doctrinally bounded community that required her members to act consistently with their faith and to be good citizens of the earthly city as far as good citizenship was compatible with faithfulness to Christ. How we do that today and where the limits are are the pressing questions of this present moment and beyond the scope of this volume, his rise and triumph for the modern self. But it is a discussion to which I hope the narratives and analyses set forth in this volume might form a helpful prolegomenon. I've kind of worked backwards from the the problem here back to essentially the solution, but how then do we connect these dots? Keller says they can't connect them for themselves anymore. How do we connect them? And how do we do this by preparing for formal opposition, perhaps even on the same level as the second century? It's not going to be primarily through cheap talk. It's going to happen through costly living. It's going to mean that we're accessible and odd at the same time. It's going to mean that we're disconcerting while at the same time being converting. The next reformation, I believe, will come when Christians enthralled by Jesus will love their enemies, care for the weak, suffer with joy, and live with honor, 
when these Christians are willing to give away their freedom for the sake of laying it down for others, when they embrace the future, when they do something as simple as setting another seat at the table. So when talk is cheap, our actions speak, and then no apology is needed. That's it. Thanks, Dave.